Welcome everyone. Tonight's week four. We have small groups in about a half an hour. For those who weren't able to make it, uh, last week I talked about the experience, the view or attitude of loving kindness as a support for and as an expression of wisdom, right view. Today I want to talk a little bit more of this transition from what we call mundane right view, a maturing of right view from an ordinary right view or ordinary sort of wise understanding that involves a sense of self to a more um, absolute or fulfilled, complete right view that isn't caught by notions of self, isn't confused by notions of self. And then for the last four weeks or so, we might take up a little of this content next week too, but then for the most of the last four weeks, we'll look at the second part of the Eightfold Path, which sometimes is called right thought, right intention, right aspiration. But it's really, you know, the whole progress is understanding then uh, whatever our belief system is or our underlying view or understanding, then that informs, that colors motivation or intention. So that's the second part of the Eightfold Path, understanding, informing that active part of the thinking mind. The I'm going to do, I want... And the shape of that intentionality or that aspiration or that resolve has a lot to do with the view in the mind. You know, when we have a really gross, narrow view, then the quality of our motivations, you know, very much are colored by that gross, dense, narrow view. When we have a more expanded, more refined view that we're operating with in any moment of our life, then our motivations how we move into the world in terms of our speech and our action, the motivating force for that engagement is much more refined, coming from a more refined view. So we'll talk about that view becoming more active in the mind as thought or resolve or intention or as aspiration. Those are the words that are used to translate um, that second part of the Eightfold Path But I want to, and you might want to bring this up in the small groups tonight, just working with these instructions on mindfulness of breathing. I did send a link out now, or something I sent out. So you have a a sort of a cheat sheet of the 16 instructions that the Buddha uses for mindfulness of breathing uh, based on Gil Fonsdal's translation and with just a few modifications. And then next to that, part of that document then was a series of notes that Nancy Vivian compiled for us, um, taken from, I think, Ajahn Tanisaro and uh, uh, Venerable Analeo, another uh, European monk, German monk, and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think those three people. She looked what they had to say about these various instructions the Buddha uses for mindfulness of breathing, and then organized them according to each of those 16 instructions 
So you can look through that if you're interested in getting more input on what is the Buddha talking about, because these sort of pithy instructions. And I've been giving instructions, of course, during the guided meditations. So we could check in for a few minutes about these instructions. And the whole point of just besides personally being on a roll with these instructions, which I have picked up and put down many times, and I invite you to do the same with all the different ways of practicing, to pick it up for six months or a year and just become a, you know, an advocate of loving-kindness meditation or mindfulness of breathing meditation or open awareness practice or mindfulness of mind practice. There are a lot of different ways to train and work with the mind, and we don't have to like them all to benefit from the training. And it's okay to have a particular way to work with your mind that you like, but we shouldn't be stuck just doing that mental training. In the same way, you know, if you're a artist or if you're a great athlete, you don't always get to train yourself in the way you like to train. You know, it's sort of, we want to be well-rounded. And so for this particular training, it's it's nice because the Buddha, uh, with these instructions, really emphasize settling the mind down, settling the heart down with the initial instructions, which we've been mostly working with. Because calm and the pleasantness of calm is the proximate cause for insight. Because when the mind is established, you know, the whole, like we all know this because it's a cliche now, the whole point of the path is to let go, right? But it's hard to know what to let go of. And it's hard to let go without getting established somewhere as an ego who wants to let go. So then we have another thing to let go of, being the one who wants to let go. So it gets really confusing. So the interesting thing about calming the mind down is the mind begins to realize that there's something here, naturally here, inherently here, that's also naturally, inherently pleasant. The Buddha said this uh, in a very important turning point in his practice and then used that insight that he had to teach for many years afterward. We don't need to be afraid of the inner pleasantness of the mind becoming calm because that pleasant feeling of settling and quietness and that feeling of wholeness, like the non-fragmentation, the mind not getting divided up by its thoughts about this and that, the pleasantness of that is not only healing on sort of a therapeutic level, but it creates the contrast that helps the mind have insight about all of its conditioned activity to worry, to plan, to judge, to compare, to wonder, to fantasize, to remember, the mind then, in contrast, when that conditioning gets triggered for whatever reason and it arises, then in contrast to the more holistic, settled, pleasant feeling of the mind, affect of the mind, then when even relatively mild neurotic activity begins, the mind really sees this is dukkha. And when it ceases, the mind really sees dukkha has ceased. 
that stress of worrying, of mental involvement, mental proliferation, it sees that cessation as freedom. So that's a powerful ground for insight is to respect the need for calm and that pleasant, wholesome easiness of mind. So, any thoughts about the meditation instructions before we go back to right view and mundane and super mundane right view? (laughs) Any thoughts? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We have to actually, that, that initial part, we shouldn't underestimate. It's by far, the hardest part is the first two instructions. Like just to have continuity of awareness with the breath in and of itself, the in and out as sensation. Because it's, we're breaking the habit of using greed and aversion to take care of business, whatever the business is. Well, yeah, like the, yeah, interest, like we have to, and this is, you know, imagination is useful here. We need to begin by imagining the mind being interested in a pure way, interested in the breath for its own sake, not to attain something or get something, but because as a natural phenomena, and we have to, in a way, you know, we say this sometimes, right? You fake it until you make it. So, you, you might have to just sort of take that step into the un, unknown and just pretend that it's interesting or just imagine that it's interesting. And it is, it really is, because everything is interesting. The only reason things don't seem interesting is because we're not paying attention. It's not so much the breath that's interesting, but the very nature of Dhamma, the way it is, is interesting. So the only reason... Like the thought that it's not interesting, whatever it might be, washing the dishes isn't interesting, football's not interesting, or football is interesting. (laughs) The only reason we have that thought that some things are interesting and some things aren't, it's just because we've organized it conceptually. But Dhamma, the mind, is naturally interested in Dhamma. And it's uh, like... uh, there's a lot of energy. Whenever the mind opens to things as they are, there will be energy there. Now, sometimes there's a lot of unpleasantness there, but it's always interesting. But there's a crust we have to break through, which is we start from a conceptual point of view. I'm going to be doing, the, you know, sitting for an hour, and I'm going to be using the Buddhist instructions for mindfulness of breathing, and... You know, I haven't had that much success with it. So we got all this content. And that's where we begin. The person operating with content. And to take that leap of faith and to connect with the physicality of the in-breath and to get interested in enough of that, like to be more and more wholehearted so that everything else has to be put aside for a while. Sure. Sure. 
Yeah. Yeah, that holistic, this is the great thing. This is why it works. And this is why it was a profound insight. Remember, you know, this should be so reassuring for us. The Buddha, so this is like metaphorically, uh, this was the person who had done everything needed to do for countless lifetimes to have just the right karma, mind, body, life circumstance, to have insight. And he was bumping up against the wall. His practice wasn't developing, right? So, doesn't that make you feel good? <laughs> Here's a perfect person having a hard time with their practice. And fortunately, you know, he'd been at it for six years, full-time professional meditator for six years, and uh, and getting frustrated, basically, and doing things to the extreme. I mean, he wasn't holding back. He was really trying his best. And he made it real clear. He said, nobody, people might have matched my effort, but nobody has surpassed my effort. So even as a metaphor or as a sort of a symbol or legend, you know, just imagine that and, and then realizing, okay, something's not working. And this is the point. He saw that, that, uh, I was unconsciously or mistakenly afraid of the pleasantness of a balanced mind settling into itself, into the quiet, into the unconstructed, the mind settling into its unconstructed nature. See, normally when things aren't working, we invest more and more into constructions. Why isn't it working? You know, so we have this world of me having a mind that's not working well or whatever. So, to put down the world of problems. That's what concentration is, or calming the mind is. We're, and we're beginning to sense, and we've got a lot of permission because the, you know, our teachers have really encouraged us to sense, to recognize how wholesome that experience is. To really trust that settling experience. Not as an end in itself, as nice as it is, but as a means or as a way to insight. So we have to, we need a little faith that there's something there because it takes, uh, from a, a volitional point of view, an ego point of view, we really got to give ourselves to the instructions. Get interested, me, from an ego point of view, get interested in the sensations of breathing in because it, if we have some continuity of awareness with the sensations, the mind has less space available, so to speak, to construct, to divide up experience into this and that, to be dualistic. So it's really a trick. To be wholehearted at something means the thinking mind, the conceptualizing mind, the conceiving mind can't do what it normally does. And it starts to feel good that the not doing of that then reveals a more holistic reality the reality of Dhamma, the way it is, not divided up or fragmented by concept. And that feels good to any human being. It just feels good. Even if it's, for some, maybe feels a little scary at first because it's unfamiliar. You know, it, it's, it's a normal state, but 
from our neurotic point of view, it's an altered reality because it's not like normal reality, that holistic feeling. Of course, the more you have it, the less unusual it feels. And people get confused about this too. It's like they wonder if they've lost something in their practice because what made it special was always from the ego point of view. You know, that initial release, like there will never be a time like that sit I had in 1990 or 1983 or something like that when I moved into a house in Berkeley with my old college friend and we were both grad students and we sat before that particular meal and my mind really settled. And because the contrast of not having kind of a, a lot of access to calm and then to really feel it, it's, uh, it was like I couldn't believe that that feeling, that pleasantness was available just by uh, disconnecting my mind from what it normally would do, just by being with the breath. I think I was probably just doing breath meditation at the time. And um, so the, the first sort of dropping of conceptual activity and just having some continuity with the breath, could be with walking, could be with washing the dishes, could be with a mantra. I mean, you can do it any number of ways. But it's the continuity that really the mind begins to feel that holistic space of Dhamma that's not being divided up. And so I encourage people to be wholehearted and to really play with it and and to, to do a couple things. Like sometimes just stick with the first two. But sometimes even though you're you're not perfect with the first two instructions, like having the continuity just with the sensations of breathing in and breathing out, just move through the whole map or a good part of the way through the map just so you're learning the map and being real clear about the intention. So you might want to use those words, like meditation words, so that will aim your mind, like for the third instruction, breathing in, experiencing the whole body. So, you know, just prompt the mind, experiencing the whole body. And as you're breathing out, repeat the words, experiencing the whole body. And then the next instruction, you know, calming the body. Calming the body. Experiencing joy. Experiencing joy. Experiencing ease. Experiencing ease. Experiencing mental formations. Experiencing mental formations. Calming mental formations. Calming mental formations. Experiencing the space of the mind. Experiencing the space of the mind. Appreciating the space of the mind. Appreciating the space of the mind. Um, what is it after that? Oh yeah, stillness, yeah. Appreciating the stillness. Noticing the stillness. Noticing the stillness. And then releasing the mind. Releasing the mind. And then the last four have to do with insight. Sort of uprooting wrong view. The latent tendencies of wrong view. And we probably won't spend too much time uh, until maybe the last few weeks doing that. Anything else about the meditation instructions that we've been working with? Yeah, Caleb. Well, you don't know that, and it's good not to believe that thought. And I would do both. I mean, I think it's fine to work with it as long as you have the sense that your work is... um, it's not just sort of going through the motions, but it's nimble. It's the mind is engaged. It's actively engaged, so that you're, it, the mind is actually, as you're breathing in, doing its best 
in the space of the body, in the realm of the body, to discern any calmness that might be there in the body. And as you breathe out, discerning any calmness. So the thing about an experience like calm, it's a relative experience, right? So on one end of the spectrum, we have agitation. At the other end, calm. So there is always calm in the body. You have to believe this. There's always calm in the body because it's a relative thing. So the habit from an ego point of view is to look at the agitation because the ego is sort of framed around being critical and avoiding danger. So we're now we're looking at the relative calm, wherever that might be in the body, breathing in, breathing out. And see, just the very nature of concentration when I tune, attune to the flavor of calm in the body, ease in the body, then it gets bigger because that's what the mind is paying attention to. And like I said, it's everywhere. One of the things I did uh, with Pa Oksaida, this wonderful, amazing Burmese teacher, I did the four elements meditation where you're all day long, you're just moving through the different elements, hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heat, coolness, flow, static, kind of lift. But all the different actual elemental feelings we have with body. And uh, and the thing is, like just to take something relatively simple like coolness and heat, you can find coolness anywhere in the body. It's just, it's just a matter, I mean, it, it, we don't think of it this way, but it's just the mind, the attention can pick out whatever it intends to pick out. And it may not be the obvious thing, but if you can pick it out, then you start to see it more and more. So one of the ways you do four element med- meditation, you practice seeing all the different aspects of the elements everywhere in the body. So you can see coolness everywhere. You can see heat everywhere. You can feel hardness everywhere. You can feel softness everywhere. You can feel flow everywhere. You can feel held everywhere. Because it's like uh, the potential of all these different qualities are there. And it's the same with calm and agitation. I could pay attention to agitation until it was like the whole experience was that sort of wiry, tense place, or I could pay attention to calm. So in the beginning, we want to pick out these particularly um, wholesome, pleasant qualities because it settles the mind and body down. And then from that place of really having settled the mind and body down, then the mind, as like I said earlier, by contrast, can really learn about the conditioned activity of the mind. So you need a little bit of confidence, like to be like, like it's the calm is there, it really is there, and you have to experiment a little bit, like using your imagination, you know, sort of jump starting it a little bit, and that's why even the word itself can be useful, like the meditation word. Ultimately, you don't need all that sort of stuff, but initially to break habit. It's like our habits are quite forceful. So the the meditation instructions to sort of counter that need to have some ump to them, some resolve or willfulness even.
Yeah, Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a lot of confidence and faith. And when you do, then the intention itself is enough. Just the intention without the looking to recognize calm or joy. Yeah. And you see this particular training that's here in the 16 instructions. It's such a beautiful expression of what we talk about as mundane right view. Because mundane right view is, this is lawful, honey. You know, it's lawful. So it, then the the real um, force of the lawfulness is intention. Intentions matter. Intentions have consequences. So if we intend to be with the breath in and of itself and to abandon thinking, conceptual activity, then there's a fruit to that. If we intend to see the calm in the body, it, that, that will bear fruit. That intention will bear fruit because that's the law of karma. That's what mundane right view is. Things are lawful. Intentions matter. If we intend to notice joy, to notice ease. So appreciate that. And you can play with that in your life too. You have a particularly difficult place Cultivate a very clear, pure intention to be more skillful or to understand more deeply the elements that are making this relationship, these interactions difficult. And you might find, without trying to figure out what's going on in the relationship, like Rebecca's saying, that naturally it's revealed to the mind like what's going on because of the power of intention. You can intend to wake up tomorrow morning at you know, 5.45, so you can get here for the 6.30 set. And you might find that that intention bears fruit. Depending on the purity and the quality of that intention, there will be a response. Now, you may not actually get out of bed when you wake up. Oh, that was neat. But I can sleep more. (laughs) (laughs) But intention really has power. But we have to gain trust in it. And this is a really great place. Like the more we work our way through it, the more we're just planting the seed, the the results then are affected. And plant the seed. And it's just sort of a maturing of the balanced, calm, whole mind. The mind that can do the work of insight or vipassana. Any last thoughts about the meditation? And I'll just mention a few things about the small group and we'll cover a lot of this material next week. But I'll just review briefly the difference between mundane and super mundane. So I I mentioned just recently, mundane means a sensing that there's a lawfulness and gaining confidence in that lawfulness. And it's really the insights in this this mundane level that there are things this mind does or attitudes or motivations or even more subtly views that this mind gets embedded in, caught up in, that are unskillful, have results that are painful. And there are attitudes and views, ways of being that this mind gets involved in that seem to be skillful in the sense that good things happen to me, 
So it's on a mundane level. So it involves a sense of me, an ownership of the bad things that happen when I'm operating with a lot of stinginess or greediness or lust or hate or aggressiveness or wholesome results when I'm operating with the opposite of those unwholesome roots. So this is that mundane, we don't get away, like Ruth Dennison said once, she used to come here to teach back in the 90s, you don't get away with nothing, darling. (laughs) So super mundane, it's just the maturing of karma. So with a super, as our, as the mind begins to um, appreciate in a more refined way the nature of this lawful universe, it begins to discern that although there's a lawfulness, it doesn't belong to anybody, doesn't refer to anybody. And that the, the tendency to think that karma, my intentional actions, refer back to me, that itself is unskillful karma, that view. Right? There are effects. Having self-view has consequences. You can't have self-view without setting something in motion. Right? With like the tendency to have self-view later. Right? When I have self-view now, the tendency for me to see things from a self-centered point of view later is much stronger. So the, the real difference, it isn't somehow that we escape karma by having right view in the deepest sense, because there's no self. No, there's still, it's still a lawful universe. Intentions have consequences. But the mind has a different relationship to what's coming and going. What's coming and going are the fruits of action. right? So there always will be this world. And this exists not just sort of within me, you know, in the actions I, I said emotion, but all of this is this lawful play of cause and effect. And it that doesn't go away, but the, the mind that understands it changes radically. How the mind understands the lawful interdependent unfolding changes. Because now my mind busily projects a somebody that all this unfolding, it matters to me. There's a somebody there that it matters to. And I have preferences. And I have fears. So I want, so even when I'm being skillful in a mundane way, I want to engage this lawful unfolding as best I can with as much competence as possible in order to get my mind calm. Because Mark says it's really nice when the mind's calm. So I want that, you know. And that's like on a mundane level. And then it's like uh, stepping back, stepping back, stepping back, stepping back and realizing that even that sense of being the practitioner who wants to taste some of this calm that everybody talks about, even that is the play of causes and conditions. Carol Wilson, I think, and others have used this metaphor of like being in jail and with a mundane view, we're in jail and we're constantly rearranging the furniture to make it more pleasant being in jail. And the super mundane view is somehow 
the view shifting and realizing the door is open. You know, I can focus in on being in jail or I can open up and see that that's just that. There's there's nothing about karma, lawfulness, cause and effect that imprisons anybody. Nobody is imprisoned by the lawfulness of cause and effect. There's cause and effect, but nobody imprisoned by it. More to say, but we need to end it here so there's enough time for the small groups. So in the small groups, it just in a general sense, don't be intimidated to talk about like what experiences of right view or wisdom or whatever word you prefer you've noticed, not just in your own life, but also in those around you. Like, what is your sense of what right view or wisdom looks like when it's operating in your own mind or operating in those people around you? What does it look like? What are the telltale signs? Well, that person has some wisdom, you know? Like, we say that sometimes. But what, do you, what do we see when we think somebody's wise, either in a mundane or a super mundane ultimate sense? What do we mean? That would be nice to clarify in the small groups. Um, just what wisdom is. How we've seen it. And then you could go back and discuss or share a little bit about what we talked about last week. How the arising of love, compassion, acceptance, forgiveness, how that can affect a radical shift of view from a very contracted, not so helpful view the more expanded, skillful view and the examples in your life because that happens more regularly for us where we go from hate, negativity, irritation to a kind of an opening of the heart, forgiving, a patience and acceptance and things just start working so much better when that shift happens. And to begin, you know, you could share about moments and how maybe you can even activate that shift of view with this flavor of metta or loving kindness or anything else that seems relevant in your practice, including the guided meditation instructions that we've been working with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.